I felt that. I felt that prayer. What Bug doesn't know is sometimes we sit up here and judge these kids, and the sermon today is about judging others. And so I appreciate you saying that, Bug. <laughs> uh, some of y'all had uh, daylight savings time, and you're feeling tired. It's much worse when you got a three-month-old. Like, I'm just saying. Already, I'm not sleeping. Then you get the hour, and then the kids got to get here at seven. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. They're, they're watching. Um, but I did want to give a quick thank you to all the people that helped with the retreat last week. And some of y'all know this. We were supposed to go to Oldham County, and we're getting ready to leave. And the parents that are dropping off their kids are looking at me like, you're an absolute idiot. And I'm thinking, I am an absolute idiot. But anyways, they call us, and they say the power's out. And so I'm like, well, we got all these kids. Like, there's like seven churches that are going to be doing this thing. And I think, I don't want to reschedule. Like, we have people. I'm not going to try to reschedule. It's so hard to get people to show up to stuff. So I call Randy. I'm like, hey, can we use the building? Immediately says yes. I called David Eichelhart, who I think he comes to the second service. If y'all don't know David, he's a major blessing to our church. I said, David, <laughs> I know you just set all these chairs out, but can I take them all back up? He's like, absolutely. I called Dan. He gets all of our music and stuff set up for the weekend. But one thing I wanted to tell you is these kids get such a hard time from adults. It's like, y'all are the ones that are raising them, so I don't know why you're giving them a hard time. But they get such a hard time from adults. On Saturday night, we had to clean up the church. It was like 1030 at night, and we got to clean up the church. But all the kids want to play this game, like all the kids from the other churches. So there's this game going on. Our kids are in here sweeping the floors, putting out the chairs, getting ready for Sunday morning so that you guys can come to worship. Like, people don't see that. Like, Joseph Dale, we're trying to get everybody to play a game. Joseph Dale is in here sweeping the floors and putting out the chairs. Like, Joseph, thank you. Braden, thank you. Anybody else that's in this room, thank you. Like, y'all get such a bad rap when y'all are the best. Like, I just love these kids. Campbell, thank you. I know you were doing stuff, too. I didn't forget about you. So, anyways, being a parent, I thought it would be so easy. Like, I don't know what y'all think. Like, I just pictured, like, five years ago when my wife and I got married, like, hey, we'll have a kid. It'll be so easy. Here's a picture of my baby boy, by the way. His name's Case. He loves being naked. And he also, he also loves being in the big bed. Like, he, he just loves it. Like, he always gets real happy. So, anyways, for his first birthday, I'll probably get him a California king. But he just, he absolutely loves it. Um, and I thought, oh, this is like what parenting is. Like, this is what it's all about, right? And so I've learned the last several months, it's a little bit different than I was thinking it was. Like, for example, you change his diaper, it's not good, all right? It's not good. Like, I was changing his diaper when he was one month old. I pick up the diaper. I take it over to throw it away, like, maybe, like, this far away. He's, like, right there. I come back. He's gargling. I'm like, why is he gargling? He had urinated in his own mouth. <laughs> on my watch. Yeah, on my watch. Or another example, I was sitting there... <laughs> I was sitting there holding him yesterday or two days ago, and his like kind of back was up against my stomach. And I'm sitting there holding him, and I feel something vibrate against my stomach. And then I feel something moist on my stomach. What had happened, if you have the next picture, it looks like the state of Kentucky, but it smelled so bad. It smelled so bad. Or like this one time, I get 30 minutes, so I feel like I just take it up, tuck it like my kid. Um... <laughs> This one time, Allie wanted to go eat with some friends, and so I was like, hey, we'll take you and drop you off. Like, this sounds like such a great idea. And so we go to Lexington and drop her off. Then we go to Bye Bye Baby, because I think maybe he'll want to pick out a toy. I mean, he's two months old, like, you know. <laughs> so we go into Bye Bye Baby. We're in the very back of the store. He starts screaming, just wailing. And it's absolutely miserable. And one of the reasons it's so miserable is because I remember not being a parent and thinking, people need to get their kids under control. Like, 
why are these kids screaming all the time? Whip them into shape, you know? He's crying in the back of the store, and in Bye Bye Baby, you got to go all the way around just to get out of the store. And so I'm taking him, and we're going out of the store. All these people are just looking at me. I'm so embarrassed. I get to the car. I don't know what to do, right? It's not obvious enough that I'm a new dad by my hat that says, Dad established 2022, and my kid's crying everywhere. But I take him to the car, and I'm just doing everything I can think of. I'm changing his diaper. It's not working. I'm giving him a bottle. It's not working. Nothing is working. And so I take him out of the car and it's kind of raining outside. I'm just doing this thing that I learned, like do this a little bit. People are looking at me like I'm ridiculous. He won't stop crying. I put him in the car seat. I drive around for a while. He won't stop crying over and over and over. At this point, there's two people crying in the car, not just him. (laughs) I'm in the front seat crying. He's in the back seat crying. Meanwhile, Allie is eating all the chips and salsa she could possibly want. And it's an absolute disaster at daddy daycare, right? (laughs) And of course, he stops crying immediately when she gets through the car. But here's the point. Why do I tell you that story? I really have no idea. No, I'm kidding. I tell you that story because it's so easy for us to judge people when we haven't experienced what they've experienced in life. It's so easy. It's so easy to look look into the world and look down on people who sin and struggle differently than we do. I was thinking about maybe people that struggle with addiction. It's so easy for us to look at those people and think, man, they must just not have any discipline. Or we look at people who maybe are sleeping around all the time. And we think, man, they just can't settle down with one person. When in reality, we don't know what's going on in people's life. And it's not to justify sinful behavior. It's just to simply say, hey, can we have some compassion on people? Can we have compassion on people? We haven't even started the sermon, but I feel like it's already, you know, preaching. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bible, here's something that stood out to me this week. The number one reason that people don't attend church... It's not because of the sermon. It's not because of the music. It's not because of daylight savings time. It's because they see Christians as too judgmental. And I know what you're thinking. Like, when you hear that, you think, well, we're not judgmental. If enough people are saying it, there's likely some sort of truth to it. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is judging others. From Matthew 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. It says this. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It says this, do not give the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces. Verse 6 is kind of talking about this idea that we want to influence a world for Jesus. But sometimes there are people that are hostile towards us and hostile towards Jesus. And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's giving us permission in a way to kind of dust off our feet and move on to the next person. But in verses 1 through 5, it's kind of obvious that he's talking about judging others. And I was thinking about this text, thinking, man, why does Jesus feel the need to mention judging others? I think there's two potential reasons. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, it says at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus went up on the mountainside by himself. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And so we know that Jesus' disciples are present during the Sermon on the Mount, so it's, it's likely there's just a handful of people there. And Jesus knows something that we need to know this morning, that if you want to influence a world, you can't have people around you that hate you. Like, 
Like we can't influence people if they don't want to be around us. And Jesus knows that. He knows that if his disciples are going to change the world, which they are, because he's commissioned them to do so, he spent time with them, he's, he's discipled them, and he knows that if the, a lost and dying world sees them as people who are harsh, arrogant, prideful, or judgmental, they can't influence the world. They have to have a different attitude, a, a humble attitude about them if they're going to influence the world. But the second potential reason why Jesus feels the need to mention this in his sermon is because everything that Jesus did, he tends to draw a crowd. It says in, I believe it's Matthew 7, verse 28, that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. It says in Matthew 8, 18, that the crowds were present. And so it's likely that when Jesus started this sermon, he just has the 12 disciples, but because of who Jesus is, people wanted to hear what he had to say. And I was asked this question this week of, the people are following Jesus, do the people want to follow you? And I want to ask you that question, do people want to be around you? Because for Jesus, there is something about him, maybe his compassion, maybe his authenticity, maybe the way he loved people, that people genuinely wanted to be around him. And you got to think that every time that Jesus draws a crowd, there's likely other people that are present, including the Pharisees. And so maybe at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 7, maybe the Pharisees are present and Jesus feels the need to call them out, just like he did in Matthew chapter 7. Six. And so there's one thing I want you to know this morning, that other than the Holy Spirit in you, one of the most powerful things that you have is your ability to influence other people. And it's worth protecting and it's worth guarding. And so if we want to influence a world for Jesus, we have to be careful in our attitude and our actions that we don't come off as judgmental towards a world that is looking for hope. And so Jesus warns us about one simple thing. He warns us about judging others. There's three reasons why he warns us about this. The first reason is this, because judging others is foolish. It makes us look foolish. Here's what it says in verse 1 and 2. It says, Do not judge, or you too, too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How foolish is it of us to receive the grace of God and not extend that to other people? I believe it's Ephesians 2 verse 8 that says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, not a result of works so that one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance beforehand. It's this idea that anything we do that's good in life is because of Jesus. It's not because of us. And so how can we have the goodness of Jesus in us and not extend it to other people? How can we experience the grace of God and not give it to other people? You see... In the New Testament, really the whole scriptures, there's two ways that God judges the world. One, he judges with justice. And two, he judges with mercy. And you can read the definitions here. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, I want you to think about your life for a moment. This is how God judges the world, but how do you judge the world? Because for me, when someone wrongs me, I tend to judge with justice. I want them to get exactly what they deserve. When I see something bad take place in the world, I want people to pay for it. You see, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself that oftentimes when I judge the world, I judge with justice and sometimes refrain from using mercy. There's this word, it's called krino, K-R-I-N-O. And it's a Greek word for the word judgment. And it simply means this, that you pretend to know someone else's motives. And sometimes that's what we do, isn't it? I was so embarrassed because a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, 
I got a call from this lady and she wanted us to do some yard work for her. Now, I don't know why she would call me. Like, I don't know how to do anything. You're right. But she calls the church and for some reason, Randy lets me take the call. And uh, I think it's because he didn't want to do it. But he, he lets me take the call. <laughs> I love Randy. Um, but she says, hey, I'm disabled and I need someone to come help me with my yard work. And I'm like, man, like, I guess I got to go help this lady. Like Randy asked me to do it. And so my immediate thought, because of past experience, like we see this all the time in the church, like people always want stuff from the church. Like they always want gift cards. They always want gas money. They always want us to come do free stuff for them, whatever. Um, and that's what my thought is like, man, this lady probably isn't disabled. Like she just wants some free labor and she called the wrong person, but she just wants some free labor. And so I get my small group together and I tell my wife, I'm like, Hey, these people are trying to take advantage of me. Like, I know they are like, she's probably not disabled. She just wants free work for, for herself. And I get there and I couldn't have been more wrong. Like I was absolutely wrong. This is the nicest, sweetest lady. She's literally unable to walk, but she's out there trying to kind of help us. She tells me this. She says, if there's anything at the church that can be done by sitting down, I'd be happy to help in any way that I can. And man, was I wrong. And I look so foolish because I judge someone without actually knowing their motives. The second thing about judging others is it can be prideful. This is what it says in verse 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? There's always like one reason why I'm so excited to preach. This is the reason I'm so excited to preach this morning. There's this passage that I came across this week, 2 Samuel 11, and I could not wait to share it with you, but it's a story that you're probably familiar with. Uh, anybody know David in the Bible? None of us? Yeah, perfect. David in the Bible, uh, he makes some mistakes. He's, he's said to be a man after God's own heart, but he makes some mistakes. And one of the mistakes that he makes is he has an affair. And I want to read the story for you. It says this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 through 5. It says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. One of the things about David is it's not only that he makes a mistake, but he lets his pride get in the way of him repenting of his sin. How often is that true for us? And what happens, if you know the story, is that David sleeps with this woman, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed because he thinks that that'll fix the problem. How often is that true for us, that we, we sin, we make mistakes, and instead of running back to our Heavenly Father, it's almost as if we run away from Him and try to correct the mistakes ourselves because our pride gets in the way. And then you keep reading in 2 Samuel 12, and there's this guy named Nathan, and this is fascinating. Nathan is a prophet that is called by God to approach David and basically tell him about his wrong. And so this is what Nathan does in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other very poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. Some of y'all understand this. Like I'm not a pet person. So y'all get this though. Like you have like a pet or an animal. It's like your child. Again, I don't understand it, but it says this, it shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. If you don't understand the story, there's this poor guy that has a lamb. That's all that he has. There's a rich guy that has a bunch of stuff. The traveler comes to the rich man. Instead of giving up something that he has, he sends him and takes the poor man's lamb instead. It's an injustice that takes place, right? Everybody in this room would agree, hey, that's wrong. That's wrong. But I want you to see David's response in verses 5 and 6. This is what he says. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You see, David is mad just like we would be. And if you don't get anything out of the sermon, I pray that you get this next 30 seconds of the sermon. David's mad. He's upset about the injustice that takes place. But he's so much more mad and upset about the injustice that takes place outside of his life than he is the injustice and the sin that takes place in his own life. And this is the response in verse 7 that Nathan tells David, you are the man. David, it's you. It's not somebody else's sin. It's your sin. But how often do we look at the world and instead of looking at our own hearts, we look at everybody else. We're far more concerned with everybody else than we are the sin that takes place in our own life. And can I just tell you this morning, more often than not, that's us. Those four words, that's us. We are the man. We are the person that's in sin. We read verses like Hebrews 4.12. It says this, the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce through our hearts. And sometimes what we do is we look at people, and instead of looking at our own life, we use this to beat people up. Instead of using it to penetrate our own hearts. Right? We read these stories and we never picture ourselves in the story. It's like John chapter 8. Y'all know this story. It's the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And we read that story, and basically these men have all these stones and they come to Jesus and they say, What do we do with this woman? Jesus gets down on his hands and knees. He begins to write into the sand. And what happens is he says this famous line He who is without sin, be the first to cast a stone. What happens in the story is one by one, the men drop the stones. He tells this lady, hey, leave your life of sin. We read this story and we think, how could these people hold these stones against this woman? Can I just tell you? Can I just tell you? 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, you are the man. We are the people with the stones. Like we're not some innocent bystander in the story. No, the story is about us. Or you read like Mark chapter 10. It's this guy called the rich young ruler. And y'all know this story as well. It's this guy that comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds and says, no one is good except God alone. He goes on. He lists all these commandments for this guy to keep. The guy says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. What do I still lack? Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give to the poor. You will have treasures in heaven. And there's this sad verse that says, the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. And we read that story and we think, man, how could that guy not sell everything for Jesus? Like, how could he just not give it up for Jesus? Second Samuel 12, verse 7, you are the man. We are the rich young ruler. We're not outside the story. We're in the story. Or we read these stories like Matthew chapter 14, where Peter and the disciples are sitting in the boat and they're absolutely terrified because there's a crazy storm that's taking place. And they see this guy in the distance and they say, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to me. Peter says this. Jesus responds by saying, come to me. Peter begins to walk on the water, but unfortunately what happens is he begins to sink. 
And you get this visual picture of Jesus picking up his friend out of the water. And he says this, you have little faith, why did you doubt? We sit here and think, man, how could Peter doubt Jesus? 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, you are the man. I am the man. We're not separate from the story, but what tends to happen is we're so prideful that we think the story could never be about us. We're so prideful that we look at everybody else instead of looking at our own hearts. And it's sad. The third reason why I think that Jesus wants to warn us about judging others is because it's hypocritical. This is what it says in verse 5. It says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Can you imagine if in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan goes to David, and Nathan is struggling with the fact that he just committed murder. And then he wants to go call David out for what he's done. Or can you imagine that in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan is struggling with an adulterous relationship, and then he goes to call out David on his sin. You say, well, that's ridiculous. That's hypocritical because he's struggling with the same thing. But sometimes that's what we do. In Matthew chapter 6, it mentions the word hypocrite several different times. It talks about praying. Don't be like the hypocrites who stand in the, in the streets and, and pray out loud so that they can be seen by everybody else because their hearts aren't in the right, right place. Or don't be like the people who give just to be seen by everybody else. They're hypocrites. Or don't be like the people who fast and they have this somber look on their face that people will come up to them and say, what's wrong with you? And then you can tell them that you're fasting. It's hypocritical. And what Randy did a couple weeks ago is he talked about a mask. Some of y'all remember that. This idea that in the first century, they would associate a mask with someone who is hypocritical. And they'd have these plays. And the idea behind a mask is you're pretending to be somebody that you're not. And I feel like the Holy Spirit was just speaking to me this week through that idea of a mask. That when we put the mask on, we feel like we're hiding our identity. But everyone can actually see who we really are. It's like I'm standing behind this stage thinking that you can't see who I actually am, when in reality, everyone can see me for who I am. It's hypocritical, and we're only fooling ourselves. There was a story that I heard of a couple years ago, and uh, maybe you guys heard this story. There was this guy who threw a dinner party. It was in November of 2020. Amazing dinner party. Like, food, drinks. I mean, I don't drink, but I'm sure it was amazing. Like, wine, beer, whatever people drink. Pepsi for my dad. Um... But he had this amazing party, appetizers, drinks, entrees, desserts. The party was said to be so loud that you could hear it from down the street. It was an amazing party. And they had these clear glass windows at the party so everybody could see how much fun they were having. It was amazing. The problem with the party was it was during COVID. And the guy who threw the party was actually the governor of California who was telling people that they couldn't gather indoors. And if they did, they had to have a mask on. And they also closed down all the restaurants. And I'm not trying to make a political statement because I really don't care about politics, but the point that I'm trying to make is that when this guy was seen having a dinner party, it made you kind of question, does this guy actually believe what he's telling people? Sometimes with us, when people look at our lives, it makes them question, do they really believe the gospel that they're teaching? Do they really believe about the grace of God and the truth of God that they're telling the entire world? Because for a lost and dying world, Sometimes what happens is it begins to make people question our message when we live a life of judging others and of being hypocritical. And I wasn't sure how to close out this sermon this morning, but I'll close out by saying this. I knew this guy in high school, and uh, he's kind of a popular guy, like pretty influential guy, and he was often seen as judgmental. He would go around people who had like Philippians 4.13 on their wristband. He'd like say something to them about, do you know the context of that verse? 
It's not talking about winning games or being the best that you can be in life. It's talking about contentment. Like he would say stuff like that to people. Or Jeremiah 29, 11, like he'd say, that was a, a promise for Israel, not for you. He'd go around saying stuff like this to people. He'd carry around this huge study Bible. Like imagine a Bible like this times like 10. He'd carry around the study Bible. And I don't know if his intention was to make people look at him, but that's kind of what happened. They didn't see him as somebody who was super spiritual. They saw him as someone who was super judgmental. He would judge people for the translation of the Bible that they read. He'd say things like, the message Bible isn't a real translation. Like, he'd go around saying stuff like that. And I tell you this story, and I know so much about this person because that person was me. That person was me. And what God began to do in my life is he would send people in my life, specifically in seminary, who were exactly like me. And I saw these people in seminary, and they would judge people. They'd be so harsh towards people. They would give people a hard time about reading the NIV. Like, why? And what I began to think in my life is, man, what is wrong with these people? Like, why are these people so harsh? Why are these people so judgmental? These people will never influence anybody for Jesus. And what God began to tell me is you are those people. And if you're not careful, and if we're not careful this morning as a church, what's scary is not just that we'll spend our entire lives not influencing people for Jesus, but that we'll spend our entire lives influencing people away from Jesus. Just like the hypocrites. Just like the people that were prideful. So what's our response? How do we respond to what God has done in our life? We worship Him. We pray. How do, how do we change our attitude? How do we change our hearts? It's simple. We just do this. Saying, God, I want more of you. God, I'm hungry for you. God, there's been a time in my life where, where I, was, I was the rich young ruler. Or there's been a time in my life where I was like the person that was throwing stones. Or there's been a time where I was like Peter and I doubted. And so what do we do? We just pray. We say, God, do something in me so that you can do something through me so that our world can be more like Jesus. Because I don't want to be somebody else that's turning people off from Jesus. I don't want to be the reason that people don't want to come to church. I don't want to be the reason that our community doesn't experience Jesus. I want to be the reason that our community experiences Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want my heart to be a heart that is chasing after Jesus. So desperate for Jesus because there's people that are counting on it. There's a, a three-month-old that's going to be counting on it someday. To have a dad that looks like Jesus. And for some of us, we will be more concerned about the culture of this country than the culture of our own homes. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is that? What I want to do is I just want to pray. And I want to ask you to join me in a moment as the band comes out. I don't know what they're doing back there. But as the band comes out, <laughs> can we just pray for a heart that looks like Jesus? Can we pray for an attitude that reflects the cross of Jesus Christ? Can we pray for a heart that is Ephesians 2, 8, for it's by grace you have been saved. It's not of your own doing, not so that we can boast. Can we just pray for that? Let's pray. God, this morning as we have just a moment to reflect, I pray that something would take place in us that wouldn't stick with us, but that it would extend far beyond ourselves. It would extend into a world that is dying, that is without you, God. I pray that as we move about our lives, we'd be more concerned with the sin that takes place in our hearts than the sin of everybody else. God, that we'd be people who are set apart, who are consecrated, who are pure, who are holy, and who are just chasing after you. We want more of you. Because for everybody in this room this morning, God, I know this to be true. We have as much of you in our life as we want right now. God, use our lives and use our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.